Hello and welcome to Lou Harry Gets Real, a podcast about arts, culture, play, puns, and stumbling forward through life. I'm Georgiana Smith-Wade, your announcer and co-host for this evening, and I am thrilled to welcome you to the second episode of this experiment in conversation and music recorded live from the Oxford Room at the Aristocrat Pub. Our guests tonight are singer-songwriter Kara Jean Wallers and from a PBS Digital's The Art Assignment, Sarah Urist-Green. And um, all of you guys, the good folks who fill out this awesome room tonight, so thank you for being with us. Now, let's welcome a guy who has bungee jumped over the Delaware River, served birthday cake to DJ Jazzy Jeff, actually had a positive experience interviewing Jerry Lewis, and now has an aristocrat signature drink named after him, the Harry Lou, your host, Lou Harry. Thank you. Thank you, Georgiana. Thank you all for being here. When I was growing up uh, on the tourist island of Wildwood, New Jersey, art was something over there. We didn't have public art that I knew of, at least, or museums. You had to go across the George Redding Bridge, up the Garden State Parkway, across the Atlantic City Expressway, and over the Ben Franklin Bridge into Philadelphia. They have a big place there for art, and once or twice we took field trips there. They also had art in New York, if we went straight north, and on another field trip we got a chance to briefly pop into some galleries in a mysterious place called Soho. <laughs> but art in my hometown, I didn't think it existed even though I was an award-winning environmental sculptor. Truth, as a youth, I won the junior division of a sand sculpture contest on the Wildwood Beach. Blue. My subject, Planet of the Apes characters. <laughs> I had a bit of an obsession with Planet of the Apes, and I still do. Uh, scholars, alas, no longer have access to those works of art. They've long since gone out with the tide. I loved drawing, too. Uh, my mother, in an effort to provide some sense of the great big world my brother and I would step into someday, bought us, one volume at a time at the local supermarket, a set of Disney illustrated encyclopedias. And while I don't think I ever read any of the text, I did develop a proclivity for reproducing Donald Duck, Goofy, Pluto, and the rest. Well, most of the rest. Mickey's head was always a problem for me. I also had a work in pencil that ended up in a private collection. In fourth grade, I drew a picture of my elementary school art teacher. It was mostly her face, and I had to squeeze in her crossed legs disproportionately onto the bottom of the page. But she seemed to really like it and asked if she could hang it at home, and I granted her that permission. Later that year, rumor had it that she was busted for drug possession, and she ended up working in a macrame shop on the boardwalk. So I don't know the fate of that piece. And that was pretty much it for my visual art career. I didn't take an art class in high school, even though the art teachers in high school are invariably the coolest human beings in the building. I never had an art history class. So I didn't know Connie Jost very well, and I damn wish I did. Jost, who died in 1998 at the age of 47, was an artist, an environmentalist, and a teacher at Wildwood High School. She was inspired by the South Jersey landscape where we both grew up. Among her major inspirations were fish. And while her work often had playful, punny titles like Flukes of Nature and 
migraine haddock. Most of it was ultimately serious. Jost took molds of fish and other marine life found in southern New Jersey and created latex replicas that she then painted and incorporated into sculpture, sculpture, sculptures and relief, relief paintings. She said in a video I recently found of her, my fishing license and my artistic license are sort of the same thing. In, in school, in high school, I had no idea what a regional artist was. I assumed legitimacy was only achieved by having work dangling in one of those field trip worthy museums. And while her work made it into galleries and was commissioned by government agencies as far away as Montana, I knew nothing about Connie Jost's work. She donated time to Jersey Shore projects, including the Schooner Project, and among their, their notes that they had from her was a list of ideas and activities. When I learned that Sarah was going to be my guest on the show, I couldn't help but dig into these pre-art assignment art assignments. Among them, make a map using only natural landmarks. Chart a way to any place using rivers as highways. She wrote, we've forgotten how to look at it that way. Artists and art teachers offer us different ways of looking at the world around us. That may sound simple and obvious, but I think it's overlooked when we cut arts programs at schools and when we look for ways to enhance our adult lives. The more I lived, the more I realized that it wasn't that there wasn't art or artists where I grew up. My mind and heart just weren't open enough to find them. Now, others did. Uh, there was Jim Gloria, a student of, of Ms. Jost, who now runs an art center at the Delaware Water Gap. Uh, his work still inspires me. Um, I sent him a note just today, and he, he mentioned his teacher and said her poise and ability to let us do our own thing Somehow, she still taught us a great deal with a light touch. Another high school friend, Barbara Preston, a journalist, continues to take evocative, compelling photographs of the place where we grew up. Next time I go back, thanks to them and to Connie Jost, I hope my eyes will be open wider. Look around you. There are artists all around you. I'm, so, I'm looking forward to wrestling with some of these art ideas uh, with our guests tonight, and I'm so glad that Georgiana uh, is my co-host for this evening. Um, if you don't know Georgiana, you should. Uh, she's co-founder of Summit Performance, which is the first uh, female-focused theater company in this city, professional company here in Indianapolis. That's right. Um, she was also artistic director for No Exit Performance, which did some of the most innovative uh, site-specific theater productions around the city. So give a quick welcome for Georgiana. Thank you. So I wish I was a visual artist. Not that I'm not happy being a theater artist. I am, um, especially if anybody out there is looking to hire me for <laughs> acting work, et cetera. I'm very happy, but um, I am jealous of the visual artists in the world. My visual art skills stopped progressing around year 1990 um, when I was very young, and my fine motor skills just aren't there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm jealous. I have a great appreciation, so I can't wait to talk to Sarah. Well, what, as a theater artist, though, how much of what you're thinking about when you're constructing a new show has to do with how it actually looks. Oh, I think a lot. Um, so I do a lot of directing as well, and I'm also the artistic director at Young Actors Theater, and I direct kindergarten through 12th graders. And so I'm thinking uh, one thing that's fun about working with them is they're very malleable, and they need to be told exactly what to do a lot, um, and especially those young ones. 
So yeah, I think that I spend a lot of time thinking about the visual of how we communicate. Um, it's not just about lines and text, although maybe I shouldn't say that to the great playwright, Lou Harry. <laughs> it's not just about your lines you write, Lou, uh, but it's all, you know, it is it's also about body it's language. Yeah, it's a lot, body language and, you know, how close people are in relation to each other and things like that. Um, I think my work is pretty visual, probably because I am so jealous of those visual artists. So I like to think um, pretty visually about how I'm creating the worlds that I'm creating and what I'm doing with the humans in them. Well, where did the, where did that initial art interest come from when you were younger? Sure. So I was in my very first play. It was a church musical that my mother was in. And um, I was three years old. And I think I was probably just hanging out in rehearsal okay. with her. Salty the Singing Songbook was the name of it. And I apparently I took it way too seriously. And, um, you know, really thought that I had found myself on that stage as a little three-year-old. And uh, yeah, from there, I think like my mom really fostered that that in me. And I was homeschooled, so I got to have a lot of say in my education, which would explain why I'm a little light on the science still and um, can't do, well, I never took like trigonometry or anything like that. I just never did it. Um, but I did spend a lot of time reading, getting to go to see things. Um, we went to Clues Hall all the time to see tours of stuff that was coming through. Um, and yeah, and my mom had me in dance class and signed me up for plays and things like that. So I think that, um, yeah, probably my mom, Karen Smith, shout out to Karen Smith, that she fostered that in me. Now the, the students that are coming into Young Actors Theater, is there a range of arts experience that they've already have? Or do you have some that are total theater kids and others who have never set foot in a museum? Absolutely. Um, at YAT, we have developed something we call self-empowerment theater. So we really encourage students to come to us that aren't necessarily theater kids already. We certainly have a, a ton of kids who come to us. I mean, we are called Young Actors Theater that are interested in acting. But we also have a lot of kids whose parents will tell us that, you know, my kid um, just kind of hasn't found their thing yet. And they've tried soccer and they've tried this, they've tried that. And they haven't found their thing. And so we like to work with those students to try to develop the creativity that's innate in all of us and try to help them find what is their thing. So we have some students, I mean, we have a one student who came to us as an actor and uh, he just moved into Parsons in New York City. He's going to be a costume designer and he's worked here for the Phoenix Theater and um, he, he's been featured in Pattern Magazine because he found himself, but in fashion, um, not on the stage. And so we like to try to foster that creativity. It's one of my favorite things I get to do. Well, part of the challenge of the arts is bringing arts to people and others yeah. finding ways to popularize it without trivializing it yeah. <laughs> uh, and finding wider audiences. Um, so one of the things I put out on social media in the past week was asking uh, friends to suggest ways that artists might become more popular. Uh, and here are some of the examples that they came up with, kind of fusing the pop with the classical arts. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the suggestions included Larry Curley and Mo Digliani. <laughs> John Singer, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, Saturday Night Fever. Yes. Renee Magritte the Fockers. I kind of like that one. <laughs> Van Gogh Dog Go. Uh, R.E.M. Brandt. Yes. There's a possibility. Chagall and the Family. <laughs> Bob Rauschenberger's. Run DMC Escher. Yeah. Very good. Yes. Uh, Viva Las Degas. Uh, Miss Jackson, Miss Jackson Pollock, if you're nasty. Good. Uh, so you think you Kandinsky? 
Vermeer to Eternity. I'm going to go through all these, so yeah, you just better settle in. People, the, How I Met Your Mother Well, which is good. <laughs> the Island of Dr. Miro. Uh, Real Housewives of Judy Chicago. I kind of like that one. Uh, for those local here in Indiana, T.C. Steel Magnolias. Uh, you can look fashionable in your Man Ray Bands. No one? No, no, no one? one? Nothing, nothing. Uh, how about Renoir and Stimpy? Yes, yes. And I think this was a wise suggestion at this point. Let's call her the whole thing off. We can do that. You got a on Facebook, uh, friends. You know, we try to keep it lively there on Facebook. Um, in a world where, uh, where the arts tend to be devalued, I think we really could use a Neil deGrasse Tyson slash Carl Sagan for arts and culture. Yeah. And I believe our next guest is well on her way to being that. Um, I first met uh, Sarah Uris Green as a contemporary art curator at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, and have been thrilled to see her reach a national platform with PBS Digital's The Art Assignment. Uh, let's welcome Sarah. Let's jump into that right away. Where did your interest in art start? Were you part of an artistic family? Well, sort yeah, my mother, my mother is pretty artistic. She was a, a calligrapher. Ooh. Uh, and so, and she took me to see a lot of art. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. Uh, and actually took a lot of art classes and took classes with some folk artists around there. Um, and they were always really sort of intriguing, strange, in a wonderful way, characters that um, made me deeply curious about about art and how how you do that for a living. Specifically, can you tell us about one of those? Yeah, one um, one artist. Uh, he went by the name the Sandman at the time, but his name is Lonnie Holly. Okay. Uh, if anyone knows his work, he's actually a musician now, mm -hmm. also, uh, and he made art out of trash and junk. And he had a house that was full of you know strange sculptures in his front yard and backyard, uh, and he also taught kids how to make art. Uh, and it really opened my mind to art that wasn't just sort of painting and sculpture and mm. fancy stuff. Do you find regionally differences in how serious local artists and regional artists are taken mm. by the city at large, the culture at large? By the city at large? Uh, not so much. I mean, I feel like there are, I hate, I hate calling it regional right, artists. Right, right. You okay. know, I feel like you can, I, uh, mm -hmm. I forget who said, you know, you've got to be hot on your block first. I think yeah. it was like, you know, but you really, you you do. You have to like prove your prove your ground wherever you are. And I feel like uh, there there are artists who are loved in their areas in their mm. hometown, which you might call a regional artist. Uh, but I think everywhere you go, there are people who have a reputation locally that maybe don't have so much recognition nationally or internationally. But I, I don't see it that that different how it seems like so much of you know when artists are in the news mm -hmm. it seems to primarily have to do when dollar signs are attached or a controversy right is attached if we only get our art news from popular news outlets what are we missing oh so much yeah. so so much um you really do it's it's terrible you have to work hard to learn about what's going on in the arts um because the the media the wider media does tend to cover only 
art market news, which is fascinating in a train wreck kind of way. Um, but, uh, you know, and I, I like to read about it sometimes, but there's no talk of what the actual art is beyond the numbers. Or it's a very sort of biographical, it's an mm. interview with one of the artists, which I do enjoy, and right. it's an important part of it, but it's also kind of like making the artist into the star, and it's which which helps get people to the work. Right. But when do we talk about the work? Right. Why artists, is that? Do you think, Sarah? Sorry, Lou, but why why do you think that? Like, when did we lose that that kind of interest as a culture in, in the work itself? Yeah. <laughs> well, we haven't for movies. That's I mean, true. Yeah. That that's something that persists. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think I mean I think our society at large. Uh, is celebrity worshiping uh-huh. <laughs> and they're looking for characters to worship uh, yeah. and for better for worse right you know it can right. be fun um, but it does take attention away from the the actual stuff of, of what's there are the the marketing arms of museums and sometimes galleries complicit in that in trying to turn people turn artists into personalities so that they're easier to sell hmm. maybe but not ri- i mean most of the organizations that i've worked for work tremendously hard to talk about the actual content mm-hmm. to so much so yeah. uh, so, so much so that you know you sacrifice getting more people there mm. because okay. <laughs> um but uh but i i yeah i think i i think everyone is complicit right. in it well, part of part of the pleasure and interest i would imagine at least in the early phases of the art assignment yeah. was you were going to meet this artist and now they're going to help guide you into something that helps make art more a part of your life right well i was really thinking with the series um about I, as a curator, I got to meet so many artists, and it was always such an amazing excuse when I was either in my hometown or in other cities um, to call up an artist or email them, more likely, and to be like, hey, can I visit your studio? Mm-hmm. And as a curator, you can do that. Right. And it's it's totally, it'd be really weird if just a regular person called up an artist. I actually, they, they probably I wouldn't mind. Would like that. It, right? <laughs> it they probably put maybe out cheese for them. To a point, maybe. Right. Um, but, uh, but then you get to go and you get to talk with them and hear about how they view the world. And I always was sitting there thinking, like, I feel so lucky that I get to be here. And then later I'd be in the gallery in front of their work and looking around at the people who were looking at the work thinking, oh, if they'd only heard the artist explain this. Um, And, you know, work to a certain extent can, should speak for itself um, with a little help (laughs) Um, sometimes. Mm -hmm. But uh, but there again, um, you know, that's putting the artist in the mix Mm -hmm. um, more. So, yeah. Talk a little bit about the the evolution of the program. Where where was the germ of uh, the art assignment? When did that start, and how did it evolve over the years? Um, the germ of the art assignment is that I was working at the um, IMA, um, and uh, I was meeting all of these artists and making shows and working on the. Um, Hundred Acres Art Park in the backyard of the museum. Which, that I, thank you uh, for that because it is one of the coolest things in the city. Yeah, I lo- I, I love being there. Um, uh, and you know, I just kept thinking like I felt very disconnected from the audience. I knew a lot of the supporters of the museum and enjoyed getting to know them, but I 
would work for years on a show or a project. It would go up. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have had some, had some arts writers in the city, but uh, I didn't really get any feedback. I didn't, I heard things, maybe a few people came up and told me what they thought of the show, but it just kind of felt like is any, I know people are walking through but I didn't really know what they were thinking and I felt increasingly disconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but all that time, um, my husband, um, who's the author, John Green, uh, was working, was creating books, was writing books, but he was also making his um, YouTube channel, The Vlog Brothers. Mm-hmm. He was having a great time and mm-hmm. talking to people <laughs> and there was just like a lot of, uh, you know, feedback. He was just, I mean, now it, it gets way way too much feedback right. I, 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 now I'm in the opposite scenario where I get way way too much feedback um, but at the time I thought like ah, it would be so cool to be able to talk to an audience about art and you know they'd have the relative anonymity of being online and could could call a spade a spade if they think the emperor has no clothes on they're yeah. going to tell you that um, so I kind of wanted to bring these artists who I was meeting um, into that arena <laughs> and see if I could, um, A, get people to become interested in um, sort of trying out art projects, trying out art assignments that would <clears throat> somehow show, uh, show the type of work these artists were doing, the way they thought, um, and to demonstrate that art didn't have to be a painting. I mean, right. Georgiana, what you're doing is visual art. Yes. Like, <gasps> Sarah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. You don't have to. You really, especially now, you don't have to know how to draw. To yeah, be I don't. Written, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so uh, I wanted to sort of show those artists off and to encourage people to try art assignments. And most of them, you don't need uh, official art supplies. As an example, one of the early ones that you had in there was where you asked people to find the geographic center of where two different people live or where two. And I just want want to say, I reached out to somebody who I had just met and we decided to do that art assignment. Yeah, He's now one of my closest friends. That's amazing. So there you go. Yeah. So you created that. Yeah. So. That's amazing. I don't know if it's art, yeah. but it's something. <laughs> it, Tell is, about that. it is if you want it to be. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but uh, so, yes, this art assignment came from these two artists, uh, Doug Paulson and Christopher Robbins. Christopher Robbins, uh, and they were living in two different cities in Europe at the time, and they're social practice artists, or you'd probably, um, you know, categorize them that way. And one reached out to the other and said, hey, I see you're making work kind of like mine. You want to meet up? And the the other one said, the other artist said, Say, yeah, sure, let's do it. Let's meet in the middle. And the other one wrote back and said, oh, ha, ha, let's like, I just calculated the exact geographical midpoint between where the two of us live. I think one was in Denmark, one was somewhere else. And the exact geographical midpoint was in the middle of a lake in Slovenia. <laughs> yes. And they said, OK, let's commit. Yeah. And, um, Ours in, was in a housing development on the east side. Right, so, you know. right. um, but so they decided on a date and a time. And then they committed to using no mode of communication during the journey. That's so amazing. none of this, yeah, like, I'm going to be 10 minutes late. You know? <laughs> or if something goes wrong, you got to problem solve around it the way that life used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
you know what it, what it ends up doing they they met in the middle one of them bought a raft one of them brought and and it was raining and one of them like swam out yes. <laughs> yes. into the raft they were that's committed. commitment yeah it was really commitment uh, and they documented their journey okay. so funny. the the cool thing about the responses to that uh, that art assignment um, were that it really shows you it, it really sort of instructs you about um, the fact that the, the journeys you usually take in your normal life are very much prescripted. You know, you take a certain way to school or, or work or what have you, um, but you would have never gone to that housing development on the east side, I'm guessing. And it also has you negotiate public and private space. You have to yeah. make a call, oh, this is private property. Are we going to trespass? You sh shouldn't. But, uh, or are we going to meet next door at the diner? Yeah. Or and what were some of the feedback you got from people who had done this? Oh, people loved it. And we, um, the premise of the art assignment is that uh, you do the assignment if you would like to, and then you post, um, you document what you've done in some way, and you share it on your <clears throat> social media platform of choice with the hashtag the art assignment. So we can see and track what people do in response. Uh, and people did amazing journeys. I mean, one woman uh, had a baby at home and couldn't really go very far, but her baby had started crawling. So she, they like, they started at different ends of the hallway. Yeah. And then but it, was a, it was actually a really cool video. And they That's met awesome. in the middle of the hallway. That's so, cool. Yeah. So what are the artists, like, do they, are they loving seeing people interacting with their work? They do, a, yeah. I yeah. mean, obviously, I don't want to speak for the art. All of the all of the artists, <laughs> all of them. Um, well, yeah. we did because we've done sixty. Yeah, wow. Um, so a lot of the art, a lot of the artists get into it, sure. Especially with social media now, like because they will follow the tag too. Cool, so, that's yeah. very cool. And for yeah. those who haven't haven't listened yet, and I'm not sure why you haven't, um, <laughs> there's these are about ten minute videos, twelve yeah. minutes, yeah. somewhere in there. So. Um, but the programming has evolved. Yes, includes that, but as other. I didn't types answer. Of it. I now. just I didn't answer your question. That's about right. the Motion of the show. You're just starting. Apologies. Um, yeah. So um, we over the course of the first three years of the series, we were putting out weekly videos, and it was a lot. It was too much. <laughs> um, but over the course of three years, we gathered sixty different assignments from artists all around the country. Um, and Tijuana <laughs> at London um, but uh, but then I was I was starting to like want to do other things uh, we had featured uh, respondents work uh, in videos uh, and then I started to make kind of um, video video essays when we were traveling uh, and then also just kind of making videos that were talking about uh, art topics in some way, things that were going on. And those actually were getting more views. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I don't like to base all of my programming decisions <laughs> on views, but I wanted to make content that people wanted to see. Mm -hmm. One of the recent ones that spoke to something that I've been fascinated by and wrestling with were uh, had to do with separating. Can you separate the art from the artist? What happens when you hate the artist? I have trouble in, in the uh, film world yeah. going to a Roman Polanski movie right. yeah. or a Woody Allen film. It's hard to enjoy them, partially because Woody Allen doesn't make very good films anymore. Yeah. But also, it's hard to... Because of what they have done. It, it, yeah, when, when you bring to the table. I won't pay to see a Roman Polanski movie although I might watch one on Netflix if I'm interested. So Yeah, I'm bummed out how many things Harvey Weinstein has been involved with, yeah. like so, everything. Right, so, so thanks, how Harvey. do you, you. you know, uh, do we apply those same kind of standards to Gauguin? Do we, you know, how much 
should we forgive an artist if they're doing interesting work? The, um, the Hannah Gatsby Netflix special, which yeah. makes us look at Picasso a little differently for some. Uh, speak to that a yeah. little bit, please. So it came up for me because uh, one of the new formats of um, the show that we're doing is called Art Cooking, where I'll say talk about Frida Kahlo and do research about, you know, in, in her case, uh, there was there have been some cookbooks uh, that came from her kitchen and things like that. So what I in my home kitchen, I will cook a few recipes and talk you through how it relates to that artist's life. Oh, that's fun. So and it's yeah, it's if they're I, a good cook. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, no I, did, I, did a, I did a Van Gogh and he never cooked, oh, <laughs> but he uh, but he lived in a lot of inns and hotels and yeah. his journals. He talks about making sort of a black rye bread that he kept in his trunk. So it's I delightful. Made, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, How long did you keep it in your yeah, trunk? Yeah. Well, no, I didn't age it. Oh, okay. we, just, we just ate it as is. Uh, but so I was, I wanted to make one about Picasso because I actually found a cookbook called Picasso Bon Vivant <laughs> about his eating life. Um, and, uh, and, but I've never, I, I, don't, I don't like Picasso. If you study art history at all, He's a pretty terrible character. Like you don't have to dig far uh, to to see the way that he mistreated pretty much every woman in his life. Uh, however, he's very important in the history of art, uh, and he's made some amazing work that I like, and I like some of it. But but I, whenever I walk into a museum, I think about him. I think about him as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this, so I made a follow-up video, Love the Art, Hate the Artist, mm. uh, where I talk about how we negotiate that and do I give any firm answers of how we do? No. But, you know, I talk about it being like once the cat is out of the bag, the cat will never go back in the bag. And once you know these things, you cannot unknow them. You may forget about them and time may pass, but it affects your reading of the work. Um, and I don't necessarily think that it's fair, uh, you know, or that, you know, just because you don't know the biography of an artist uh, doesn't mean that they were a great person. Uh, and part of it is due, you know, it comes back to how we market art and how we learn about it. And, the, you know, we, we pitch artists as these sort of celebrities who stand for their work. And then there's a downside to that as well. As a curator, do you want somebody to know? How much do you want them to know about the artist when somebody's walking into a gallery and seeing the work? It completely depends on the art. I mean, I think it was uh, Tracy Amin, the uh, British artist who did a work that's about all the men she's ever slept with. <laughs> so that is personal. Yeah. You know, and some art reminds you of mm. who the artist was. Some, some, some of the art is autobiographical. Mm. And so if it is, you're gonna think about it, and that's okay. But if it's a mirrored cube in the middle of an empty <laughs> gallery, you're probably not gonna think about it. So I think it depends. I'm still, I don't know how well you know or if anyone is familiar with this, the, the Morley Safer 60 minutes sort of takedown of contemporary art that he did uh. back in the, in the 90s, which, <laughs> yeah. which, which was notorious. <laughs> um, they called this segment on 60 minutes, yes, but is it art? There was a lot of talk about the emperor's, you know, has no clothes and worthless junk without the hype of the dealers and the approval of critics. Talking about art that is, you know, oh, my kid could do that kind of Uh approach to art. Do you think there's still that 
attitude out there and no. is, is any of it deserved? One thousand percent it is okay. out there and they all of those people speak freely on the internet. <laughs> um, and and it actually when I first started to make videos, because our, our PBS Digital Studios is an off is part of national PBS, but it's their attempt to make free educational content that lives primarily on YouTube um, to reach the audiences that now live on YouTube because people aren't really watching a lot of TV anymore. I don't know if you've noticed. But um, so uh, so I think um, I just lost my train of thought. But the, we were, that attitude. That attitude, right. Okay. Um, so yeah. yes, it's that there. Nail in the wall it is art? there. And you know what? It made me angry at first, or I was impatient yeah. about it at first. Uh, but it is it is at the core of right. what this is. You have to work for it. And actually, um, I lived and was going to grad school in New York before I moved here um, to work at the IMA. And that was one of the reasons why I liked working here is because people were questioning. People would walk mm. into a gallery and be like, eh, I don't think so. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't buy this. And I wanted mm. to have to work for it. Right. Because in New York, there's, there's such a huge built-in art mm. audience of, of believers who will come to an opening and, and you know, maybe they don't love it, right. but they're not gonna say like, uh-uh, I don't think so. Right. Um, is that, why, why won't they? Because they're afraid of not being not seeming, you know, art savvy, or are they? Well, I think it's a complicated question. I mean, I think that the more time you spend around a lot of art, hopefully the more open you are to different kinds of art. And if you open your mind to learning about ways to appreciate super minimal art, you do. You have to get into the right mindset. Yeah. If you think of art as painting and sculpture and you want it to look like a, you know, you want to marvel at how photographically real it is or you love the brush strokes you're not going to automatically like super minimal sculpture but i will say even i have a line i mean i <laughs> the, i look at some art and i'd be like ah, it just doesn't you know i don't mm. say it's not art though right. like i think that's the next step you can say like i this doesn't mm. i i've tried i've done some research sure. i've listened to a few videos about this um and it's okay. You should not like things. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but to say that, oh no, I don't like it, and it, you know what? Not only do I not like it, but it's not art. That's not cool. You don't get to decide. You know, everybody decides what art is for themselves. So, in my mind. Now, on the other side of that, there's, especially when it comes to public art in cities, there's often the battle of the individual artist with a vision versus the committee where everyone wants to have a voice in what's going to be seen on their street corner publicly, yeah. which can have a tendency to water things down a bit, to put it mildly. Yeah, um, or make it safe, or go safer. Or go safer, safer, which I guess leads to me, to help me understand my irrational hatred of the J. Seward Johnson sculptures that litter Carmel and Carmel oh, Indiana yeah. on every They're corner. They're scary, Lou. That's why you don't like them. Why do, scary. Why do I hate them so badly? Because you think you're going to yeah. hit one of them. Like... <laughs> About yeah, please. I, I want to. I want to learn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I haven't. This is. I'll just be riffing. I haven't given it some thought. Um, but but you've been I, there. They're so cheery, and they, <laughs> they like harken back nice. to a time that never was, and certainly isn't now. You know, like mm -hmm. I, I. I mean, I think they're supposed to be nostalgic, or they're supposed to make you think of like. There's a the time when right, your yeah. grandparents like when kids could walk cream. freely to yeah. get an ice cream without yeah. you know uh, 
I I don't know, but I think I think that's what may would that that's what makes me not like them. Yeah, what part of it for me is I see all of those pieces and they seem to breed somehow and more of them keep appearing yeah. and I keep thinking of all the artists of interest who aren't being represented there and who could be if there was a little more right. guts You guys it. are so like noble and smart because I literally just think they're terrifying. That's, <laughs> that's why I don't like them. Yeah. And I'm sure many an obscene photo has been taken with them <laughs> yeah. after dark. Well, that makes uh, me feel bad for them. Yeah. Oh, no, that's good. That's people taking ownership yeah, of their right? public that's art. Good. Okay. Yeah, right? Um, I mean, what, what should happen when it comes to public art? Yeah. How much should the person who lives down the block have a say in what they're going to look at when they walk down the street? Well, I think in that case, I mean, I would ask who are the artists in that immediate community and what kinds of organizations are they part of? And like, how can, if you want a voice in a particular community, you have to work for it and you have to angle, you know, figure out angles to, um, to get in there and get your work in there. I mean, I think I, I couldn't, I, if you're maybe you're thinking of artists who work elsewhere in the city, maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to, if, if people have, who are making those decisions don't have the information, or you feel like they're making decisions that are easy, you have to get, you have to make suggestions to them. Yeah. You have to encourage them in different ways to know that these other options exist. Yeah. Because it does, it does matter what a community thinks about yeah. the art. I mean, I do think at a certain point, I, I don't believe in like design by committee for art. Mm-hmm. I do believe that it waters it down and makes it bad. But I think that um, temporary art programs in public spaces help with that because mm. you can experiment a little bit. You can bring an artist in, and the artist can decide in conversation with maybe a few, tr- mm. you know, a few people, few key players, what goes out there. But then you put it out there and you see how it goes. If people don't like it, they're probably going to tell you. <laughs> we, we often, I think, at least I, thought of art as a permanent thing. It seems like more and more there's more interest and more happening, and partially maybe just because of your videos, I'm more aware of them, uh, of projects that are not meant to you know, be hanging in a museum 2,000 years from now. Um, artwork that is influenced by the environment. I'm not just talking about my own sand sculptures, of course. Um, <laughs> Is that something that's more embraced now, or is it just something that is acknowledged that not every Um, art has to piece of art has to have a dollar sign attached to it and hang in a museum? Well, I think um, Georgiana is a great example of the fact that art doesn't have to be a thing; it doesn't have to have like permanent material value um, to be to be like worthy. Um, I think probably since the 1960s, there's Mm. been more and more art that way that's been like happenings or installation or temporary uh, a lot of I, I think it's a great opportunity to test things out if you're gonna make something that's in bronze and it's going to last forever on a sidewalk in Carmel then you know you make certain decisions and you and you try things a different way but if it's something that I don't know is made of chocolate and it's going to be eaten by squirrels and slowly disintegrated. This is a terrible <laughs> I think you've landed on a project. Yeah, no, I'm not an artist. I'm not, I'm not an artist. Uh, but, uh, but I think, you know, I think it can be fun and it depends on what the artist wants to do. I think more and more artists have opened their mind to doing sound art or, um, you know, engaging with community and materials in different ways. So, yeah. How would 
you recommend, you know, the, hopefully there are people listening to this, not just here in Indianapolis, but around the country, around the world. What, what's a good way to figure out who is creating art in your community, how such works get created? Um, yeah. To be not in the ignorant state that I was growing up about what was going on around me. Right. Well, I think you do th- a problem about it. And the reason why I'm on YouTube is to hopefully show a little bit of what's happening um, to people who don't seek it out. But uh, a lot of times you do have to seek, seek out art. You have to look up um, listings on, you know, your your local papers, uh, websites. Um, there's listings in your community. You can do very simple Google searches uh, to find organizations that are having events. Um, and, or if you're out and about in a city and you see something, if you see a curious, you know, sh- storefront, go in, uh, get on their mailing list or you know, email list or what have you. But you do have to, um, you do have to sort of go out of your comfort zone usually to to find it. Especially here, because this this is not a dense city. It's very spread. So a lot of times you're not necessarily going to run into it. Um, but I think with some very simple actions and watching the art assignment, um, you can really learn a lot. Can you can you give listeners uh, and those folks here a brief art assignment? Oh goodness. Okay. Um, Oh, you should have prepared me for this yeah. one. Okay. Why would we want to do that? Uh, I will give you an assignment that is what actually uh, an artist named Jace Clayton, uh, who was visiting Indianapolis a few years ago uh, as part of the We Are City um, uh, uh, effort that was going on then. He uh, made this, he does some sound art, and his assignment was to take a walk and try to find the quietest place you can. Oh. And then, so it, you may, and it's interesting because once you do it, you think, oh, I should go outside. But outside is very loud. Yeah. I think it might have uh, been in this room after some of the puns. You just have to find a punster and then you can find some quiet. Um, but, uh, but I think that it's, a, it's an interesting exercise because it, it sort of, teaches you to listen to where you are yeah. and to listen to the sounds where you are and to hear unexpected things. The assignment, there's a video, so you can just go to Google and uh, look up um, the quietest place, the art assignment, uh, and you'll find the video. But go, so you're supposed to find the quietest place and then make a short recording or video there or jot down some notes on what you do here. That's cool. Try it, some yeah. of you. Yeah. Um, we're going to t- give more questions to Sarah. You have a uh, paper and pencil in front of you. Those who are here, those who are listening at home, sorry. Um, you'll have to just email them. But uh, if you have questions you want to ask, we're going to take those during the break. Uh, so scribble those down. Uh, but I want to I'll thank her later, but I also want to thank her now, Sarah, for... Um, transitioning to another form of art, uh, Cara Jean Wallers uh, came to music as a fourth generation musician, um, her CD, Goodnight Charlotte, is one that has meant a lot to me and is a, a, a beautiful recording that I want you all to seek out. Um, she's going to do a song from that now, and then we're going to talk with her after the break. Please welcome Tara Jean Wallace. Thank you so much. Um, this song is about. Um, well, I always struggle a little to come up with a good way to introduce things, so I'll just say it's about um, tubas and 
young love and regret. <laughs> it's kind of cliche that way. It's called Black Dog. Stephen took his tuba up to Juilliard in the fall. I drove up to see him on a whim There was something in the road that pulled me in And I listened to a Led Zeppelin song And sang along and thought of Stephen And that black, black dog I remember being young and foolish Like the summer used to fall And I climbed up on the roof right next to Stephen and a black, black dog. We laughed our bellies full of wine all night. And he said my name out loud eight or nine times. And I fell in love with Stephen and that black, black dog. Good night, you ballerinas. Rock on, all you big rock stars Where have you gone, all you art school hipsters? Rock on, wherever you are Wherever you are I had to and I'd write another song But my mind's stuck on Stephen And I wonder about his black, black dog They left their bellies full of wine all night Does he still say my name out loud Eight or nine times God bless you, Stephen And that black, black dog you ballerinas rock on all you big rock stars where have you gone all you art school hipsters rock on wherever you are wherever you are get on down the road little sister Pass me on by like I'm a dense black fall Step right over your regrets Like a twenty-year whisper Of a Led Zeppelin song About a black, black dog
so much. Mary Jean Wallace. We'll be back after just a short break. Get, bring your questions up when you have them. We are back. Welcome to Lou Harry. It's real. And um, we are going to welcome Kara Jean back to the mic. Thanks. Um, Kara, can we, a, we chat for a minute oh, before yeah, you take let's, let's, talk, let's talk a little bit. I want to know about right. the, the roots of, one, your music, where that comes from. I, I'm told fourth generation musician, right? Yes. Tell us about when... Tell us about the family a little bit. Let's hear where I, that came from. I, th I mean, as far as I know, it's fourth generation. You know, I don't know how far back music goes in my family, but it was never really an option not to play. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember my dad, my mom and dad both played um, on my bed. They would sing two-part harmony, and my, you know, both of them play, I don't know, two or three instruments apiece. And um, my grandparents um, all play instruments. My um, great-grandfather played for the New York Philharmonic. Um, I didn't know that until I was like 30. Like, what do you think, you know, when I was like studying classically when I was like 10, that might have been something that you would have mentioned to me. But Was there a, but, a uh, teenage rebellion turning away from music where you say, I'm not going to play music or sing? Or? Weirdly, no. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I just always, um, I played. I started um, playing piano and then um, I started um, playing upright bass classically and then um, I got carpal tunnel so that kind oh. of took me away from a career classically and I went into visual art and graphic design and I didn't really ever realize that I could sing or play guitar because I think there's um, you know with a classical training it's it's much different than pop music you yeah. know so um, what? I never really never occurred to me and then someone said you should you should record this album like Oh, okay. So I did. I don't what know. was that transition like for you to go from the the classical world into being a songwriter and you know and performing in, in a venue like this? Like, it was it was a little difficult. Yeah. I didn't I didn't really um, I didn't make that conscious transition. I, honestly, I had a boyfriend who his bass player quit, uh -huh. and um, and he was like, "Well, you play bass." I'm like, yeah, and. Um, <laughs> For country band, and um, you know, it was like a kind of a country bluegrass band, and I really didn't know how to play because it wasn't written right. on charts or you know sheet music in front of me. So I really had to kind of dig in and um, learn it, I guess. And as far as writing, I I just started doing it. I don't know how it happened. It was just a weird thing. So well, we just heard heard Black Dog, which is a wonderful song. Where? Where does, I'm always curious where the germ of something comes from. So, I mean, were you hearing the music of that? Was there a line from it that stuck in your head? Where to talk about the evolution of a song? Oh well, I wrote that in the bathtub. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was just one of those. Um, I I try to keep um, the lines open when it it comes to concepting new music. I don't I don't actually really think about what I'm writing, uh, which I probably would be a lot more prolific if I did. Um, but I'm not one of those people who has like notebooks and sits down and like, I, this would make a really good song. And I've tried to do that. I've done it maybe twice. And I've written, I don't know how many songs, but, but I wrote that song um, in the bathtub. Um, I was taking a bath and I remembered um, this, this kid that I went to music school with he used to take me on the roof so it's a pretty literal song, <laughs> um, to listen to Led Zeppelin on this like cassette recorder. And he made me listen to every single Led Zeppelin 
song ever recorded and um bootlegs everything i listened to a lot of zeppelin that summer but um (laughs) and then you know and i'm like 30 or 35 or something and i thought oh my gosh he liked me that's so weird how did i not know when i was 17 you know and um and i just wrote the song i just picked up my guitar and i it's almost like i'm just thinking or talking to myself and that's how it came out so do you hear like the melody first for yourself or do you pick up the guitar and and fiddle around and and find it that way um no i i just pick up my guitar and play a song and that's what happens I love it. So, it just comes out yeah that's amazing so, well sometimes it's not good <laughs> um <laughs> i have got a lot on my iphone you can listen to but um so there's this producer, Daniel Lanois, who's um, very famous, and he, he records everything he does. And so I read that, and I thought, I'm going to start doing that. So now every time I, not every time, every time I, almost every time I play, I have like a cassette recorder, um, like the old, you know, tape decks yeah, that you right. would use for like hearing tests, you know, yeah. in elementary school, and um, or my phone, or I, tr- I was trying to get away from technology altogether. So I got this little um, reel-to-reel battery-operated <laughs> reel-to-reel thing that... Um, which just sounds absolutely horrible. But the great thing is, is that I'll never let anybody listen to that. <laughs> and it's not like anybody can find these little three-inch mm-hmm. tapes and say, no one's gonna oh, that. right, yeah. you're not going to listen to all my weird sketches. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, But I, I do try to just keep things automatic that way and just let ideas come into my head. I think if you, if you clear your head which is really really hard to do you're talking about trying to find the quiet space like i try to make my mind that quiet space which is really really hard to do so i drive a lot and i walk a lot and i sit by the lake a lot and um you do it long enough you just start hearing things i think so i was watching a, a leonard cohen documentary where he was talking about the challenge sometimes of calling up the emotions for a song that he wrote five years ago or 10 years ago and being emotionally honest while singing a song. A lot of times with singer-songwriters, we don't talk much about the singing. Is there, how do you get in the head to be able to sing a song that talks about an experience from however many years ago, but also was written maybe a decade ago? Or do you even think about that? Um, well, now I do. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Never mind. So, no, sometimes, sometimes it is really hard because I've written some really um, autobiographical songs that were really too personal. If mm-hmm. I would have thought right. about it too much, I never would have released them, ever. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people ask me to play those songs, and I just I just shrink a little, you know. Like, I'm, yeah. it's kind of embarrassing, and you, kind, you just have to pull your... Uh, maybe that's what actors do. I don't, I, I've thought about yeah. that before, like yeah. kind of get back in that um, zone then it bums me out a little bit and then I uh, I play Stevie Nicks or something I don't know trying <laughs> <laughs> to make a joke to kind of uh, well know. we're going to hear something new yeah. next right one of the first audiences to hear this one yeah I, I played it a couple times so um, it's called The Hunger I'm working on a new album um, with um, some really talented musicians I'm really excited about so this is going to be off that and uh, I don't know when you can expect to see it because I'm slow (laughs) and um, not very disciplined (laughs) (laughs) anyway it's called The Hunger I can't stand the silence in the night when I'm lying like a dog by your side 
Waiting for the crack of dawn to peep Cause a soul that's filled with hunger never sleeps There's a sigh of desperation in the wind And a feeling of resentment moving in And an ache inside my bones that starts to creep Because a soul that's filled with hunger never sleeps When I was young and so unafraid I didn't know the road would bend so many ways I didn't think I had so much to prove Till I came to know the hunger that was you There's a worried stillness in the moon's soft glow And it tells a story everyone should know Worried moon, it is an omen before morn. The violent wind surrounds the eye of every storm. So I'm laying like a dog right by your side, trying to soothe away the hours of the night. But I don't know a single soul who can soothe the restless spirit of a hungry man. When I was young and so I thought my heart would find your love to be the cure I didn't think I had so much to prove Till I came to know the hunger that was you When I was young and so unafraid I didn't know the road would bend so many ways I didn't think I had so much to lose Till I came to know the hunger that was you. We're going to take some questions that were asked of our uh, guests today, uh, supplied by folks from the audience. And thank you all again for coming out. Um, uh, Sarah. Why aren't artists household names as they once were? Will art be a popular form again? Quotes around popular. And is this true in other countries? Oh, goodness. Um, well, I think I'll take the last part okay. of it first. I think Europe is still a little, a little more progressive uh, maybe than, than we are about knowing more artists as household names. I think part of it is just that the art world or worlds are so much bigger than they used to be. Mm -hmm. um, more people are making art. There are more art museums. There's more art news. Like yeah. there didn't used to be a museum and a contemporary art museum in every single mm -hmm. in every single place. There's just more to keep track of. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of it is because of good news that there is more production. So it's harder to keep track of. Uh, and so I, I think that's part of it. I mean. When was the last household name artist? You know, what what visual artist is a household name do now? Have, do you have to go back to Andy Warhol? Well, to, maybe. Banksy, uh, does that count? Banksy, yeah, yeah. that totally so, counts. Banksy, so there yeah. there's a household name. I mean, there's Jeff Koons, right? Jeff Koons, Damien Hirst, they get, uh, you know, Damien Hirst gets um, headlines for his market, you know, yeah. like, but. Um, I guess part of it is, you know, which ones 
who could you put a headline on without having to say artist? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. You know? Ai Weiwei. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we were thinking we were thinking about that just with uh, in theater with the death of Neil Simon recently, mm -hmm. thinking how many people could name a living playwright? Right. And very few could. And it speaks in a way similar to what you're talking about with museums. It used mm -hmm. to be that there wasn't regional, there weren't regional theaters in every market. Right. There weren't as many theaters around the country, and people just thought Broadway is where theater happens. Uh, some people the, still think that. Some people still think that. But the reality is that some of the most produced playwrights, you still wouldn't know who their names yeah. are. Right, right. And I think, I mean, maybe the, the good news behind that would be that we're making another kind of media for art and that mm. your interest in it is maybe not only about the kind of celebrity of Jackson Pollock mm. and look at this Life magazine photos of, of mm. him at work, um, but maybe it's more, maybe it's better that there are more people. And it seems like the opposite has happened in film, where it seems like more people now than 30 years ago knew who directors were, yeah. knew right. the names of directors. Kara, right. so. um, uh, has Stephen commented on the song Black Dog? No. Oh God, no. no. <laughs> where is Stephen today? He, you know, that's, I, mean, <laughs> I, I made that up, but yeah, I yeah, totally yeah. made up. So. Oh, we'll move so. along from that. He doesn't really know about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the worst thing about being a songwriter. It's like, I can't help but write about things I think sure. about. And I don't really think about, I don't invent things. So, you know, I might write a song about this tonight. And I mean, I Please like do. you. <laughs> so that's good. But I don't always like people. And sometimes you get a bad song out of it. <laughs> Stephen was a pretty nice guy, I think. Um, I'm going to spend this for the whole panel. Um, Speak a little bit about life in here in Indianapolis from a personal, professional, and cultural perspective. Why do you stay? I'll start. Um, I graduated from Butler University with my degree in theater, and thank you. No bulldogs, <laughs> do it. Um, and I kind of assumed I'd moved to New York City, like most actors do. Um, I found really exciting work though happening in Indianapolis and what I liked about it was that I felt like I could be on the ground floor of something and I could kind of do my own thing instead of um, you know instead of being cast in Hamilton which I obviously would have been <laughs> um, but uh, I so I liked that and then you know I I kept finding work I found challenging and then I found young actors theater and I found um, a home where I get to work with kids and help them find their voices and still get to direct and scratch like you know my playwriting itch and still get to act and do all of that and have kids and you know take up Taekwondo and um, and do all of that in this city and and feel like I'm um, doing something that I can be really passionate about so yeah I would say uh, and ultimately what keeps me here is Young Actors Theater. It is, um, it's just is truly magic. November 3rd, come check us out for real. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really like being here for a number of reasons. We have really good friends here. We've made amazing friends and we've made a great life here. We've been here over 10 years now um, and I never imagined that we would stay after I left my position at the IMA, um, but I've actually sort of discovered in Indianapolis outside of the museum yeah. where I spent like 99% yeah. of my time while I worked there. Um, and we're, I, I have a seven minute drive between my house and my office and my kids' school, and I don't have to worry about a lot of the 
the sort of business of life that I did in New York. Like every second of my time, I was like, which, which train do I have to take to get here? And grocery shopping, I had a push cart, you know, <laughs> to push everywhere if I wanted to get a case of LaCroix or whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, so the, I think that is part of what I really appreciate about here. And um, uh, and there, there are things going on. I feel like you can still make a mark here. Mm. Uh, that if you're sort of shouting into an abyss in really large cities, and I feel like if you do things here, people appreciate it. I think um, Indianapolis for me is the best of two different worlds. There's really, really vibrant um, creative community that I'm so grateful to be a part of, and I've had opportunities to move, and I've I've not because because of that community. Um, and also, you can take a drive like a half an hour out of the city and yeah. totally lose yourself right. in a beautiful place, especially in the fall. You know, and it, I agree. I think that's a huge selling point. You can go from the heart of downtown and be in the middle of farmland in like 45 minutes, yeah. and I think that's really cool. Yeah, but I think I think the creative community here yeah. is just really, really inspiring. So, Sarah, what is your favorite museum in America or abroad to view contemporary art? Oh goodness. Um, the first one that springs to mind uh, would be the Van Abba Museum in Rotterdam, <laughs> which is pretty obscure. But what they do that's really cool is they have a historic collection, but they weave in contemporary art in really mm. great ways. So you're still, you know, I feel like a lot of encyclopedic museums you go to and you see the old stuff with the old stuff and you mm. see the new stuff in the new area. And um, the Van Abba Museum is really, really good at weaving in um, even if it is a gallery of all older art, they weave in sort of contemporary takes mm. here and there or interpretation. So, uh, Georgiana, uh, define what, why was there a need for a female focused theater company? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> good news, we are all trapped here for four hours. Um, <laughs> so, uh, oh. I have a lot to say, and I'm going to keep it short. Um, one thing that my uh, partner, Lauren Brigham and I, when we started this idea of Summit Performance Indianapolis um, together, and she is now the artistic director and is um, and is a brilliant actress in her own right. So yeah, yeah, Lauren Brigham shout out. She's awesome. So um, when we started working together on this project, we started to pull research to try to make a case for funding about um, why there is a need mm -hmm. for a female-focused, um, you know, theater company. Why tell those stories? You know, what what needs to happen? And the statistics were alarming mm -hmm. in terms of um, how little work there is for women, how little work there is to tell female stories, how how few female playwrights get produced how unless you're a costume designer or a stage manager, you're probably a man. Mm -hmm. um, Indianapolis is a little bit spoiled because we have the awesome Janet Allen, who's the artistic director of the IRT. So we kind of think like, you know, mm -hmm. look at that um, woman in leadership who has helmed that organization for years and years. But the truth of the matter is, is that is not the norm across the mm -hmm. country. Um, it, we, Lauren and I both pulled on our own experiences of feeling like um, as young actors in Indianapolis or young burgeoning directors too that there just wasn't the work for us that there were for uh there was for men and we both became mothers too and i think that allowed us to kind of tap into uh, or for me i shouldn't speak for, sorry lauren i'm not gonna speak for you but for me um uh, that led me tap into like just another activity that is part of womanhood for so many women 
Um, and it made me feel like kind of, I had a new understanding of my mother and my grandmother and things like that. And I was like, gosh, there's like, um, there's so many stories that need to be told. Um, and then as we were putting it all together, I had a miscarriage and I was like, yet again, that was another like kind of reminder of like, well, this is like a, so many women go through this. And this is a story I want to see represented because I want to, um, see myself on the stage in this way and, and hear this story. Um, so yeah, like that and, and, and pulling these statistics about employment and things like that, we were like, gosh, there's a real opportunity here to, um, uh, you know, for, and I think of my young students, I have so many female students that I'm like, gosh, I want you to know how cool it is to be you and how being a woman is, um, as a part of that. And, you know, I just call, call me back and do a whole segment on that. Cause it is, it's, it's really, it's a, I'm really excited about it. So check and out Summit Performance when we do another show. And it's true that you look at the cast list for so many plays mm -hmm. even now, and it's five men, two women, yeah. or six if you men, take three. Shakespeare, for instance. Now, you, we get to see a lot of Shakespeare in 2018. Um, Indie Shakes that does the free Shakespeare mm -hmm. on the White River, they do a great job of kind of diverse casting. But if you really look at, like, true Shakespeare, and he's the great playwright, right? Um, you know, it's going to be like, Two women. One of them's the you know the lead lady, and then the other one's like the nurse or the mm. the the not cool one or whatever, <laughs> and and that's it. And then there's twenty seven thousand men um, in the play, and that is yeah, that's kind of the good thing we got playwrights like Lou Harry who write really interesting women. Um, it's true and that um, that I love reading. For. You know, when you get inspired by when you are inspired by some of the actors here who encourage writing yeah. of such characters. Write me a play, Lou. <laughs> Another one? Um, if we are to try to, as uh, a viewer writes, if we are to try to appreciate all forms of artistic expression, I find it a little snobbish and superior to dismiss the Johnson sculptures of Carmel. Without fail, these statues amuse every viewer on first sight. Uh, appreciate them for what they are. Art to amuse every age. Not necessarily a question, but do you want to respond? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm the one who yeah, launched I, that, but. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I think, um, I, I think that it's, I think they provide a lot of joy and I think that's great. I think that um, I appreciate, I, I look for different things in art that I think other people do. And I think if they're enjoyed, that's, that's, Wonderful. So I, I, I have been. I, I feel ashamed, and I'm sorry. Oh no! I, I, and I and I don't. <laughs> no, no. Seriously, my my feeling is, I think one of the issues regionally, not just in Indianapolis, but in a lot of markets, is a fear of having an opinion. Mm -hmm. There's a sense that everything sort of has to be okay, or everything has to be middle of the road, and I think we see that in uh, in the limited amount of criticism that we sometimes see written, and we see that in, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a believer in just, and there obviously I was taking pot shots, but generally um, we shouldn't be afraid to have a thought of something, and then to listen to people who have a different viewpoint about it, well, and I, to sort of incorporate that into the conversation. Um, I, think, I think it's great that they're there. I think that there should be more. You know, like if there's only one. You mean more different, please. More different. Okay. <laughs> no, not more. <laughs> Sorry. 
uh, other contributions by other voices. You know, so if there's only one or a few things up there. And there are literally thousands of them, right. I believe. So no, I, I, I like to hear from a diversity of voices because, yeah, some people want to look at art and be amused, but some people want different things from their art. So I think it's important to, like, acknowledge what this particular art is capable of doing mm -hmm. and then think about, like, well, what is it not doing? Maybe I maybe we need to have more art in a different place that is more about questioning, uh, or yeah. And I feel the same way sometimes when um, when a lot of efforts put into it. I don't think everything has to be local. I think there's a a benefit to tapping into what's happening in the outside world, of bringing other artists in here, of having our artists elsewhere, and all of that. I don't think everything has to be hyper local. But I, I get a little, when I see a work of art go up that is almost identical to something in another town, I feel like we're just sort of buying into the commodity of it instead of doing something that really speaks to wherever that piece of art is going in. Um, anyway. Yeah, I feel frustration that way as an artist, too, um, because I, I, I've pitched ideas, you know, um, with my professional graphic design and also just like painting or, you know, um, to clients, I have, you know, sometimes you have off-the-wall ideas, and sometimes they're really, really good ideas. And then there's a committee who yeah. wants to do it like they do it in Cincinnati, and that is really make can really make you angry if mm. you're an artist or in the art world. So I don't, I don't know. I don't, oh. I don't mind the sculptures. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't like them. I mean, I, I think they're safe. I think they are what they are. I think there's all kinds of art, and it's like it's very safe art, and that's, like that's that. a little frustrating. I like that point though, Lou, about like I think one thing that our society maybe is lacking in, in general is the courage to have an opinion and and be able to discourse about it in a kind way. Mm -hmm. With well, I think there's a that's, lot of opinions. Yes, right? yeah, a lot of opinions, yeah. But being able to discourse with each other yeah. in a kind way. Um, and that's one thing I love about art and what I love about art of all disciplines is that I think it does teach empathy and, and teaches you, you know. So next time I drive through Carmel, I'm not going to choose to be creeped out by the statues because I am. But I am. But I can look at them and be like, you know, yeah, like, you know, who does appreciate this and what are they seeing? And I think that that's, that's, that's cool. And I think and I, I enjoy a good cover band now and then. Oh, but, I do. But, you know, cover bands can be great. But I'm more proud of them. the <laughs> No, no, occasionally, but but I think singer-songwriters yeah, uh, are there's more, you know, something more magical about those, and yeah. I'm more interested in those. Um, won't good art outlive the artist? Mm. Is outlast? Yeah. yeah, is that a um, is that a requisite? Should it should that be a, a given that something that is good should outlast the arts? Well, I think we should all acknowledge that no art lasts forever mm -hmm. and that we are visitors here <laughs> <laughs> and that maybe your marble sculpture that, you know, most of the marble sculptures that we see that have survived from ancient Greek times are, are not even close to what they were. They're mm -hmm. fragments and they were originally painted and they look mm -hmm. nothing like they did then. So I, I feel like... Um, I feel like that's asking too, I feel like that's definitely asking too much of art. And I think that artists make things for a variety of reasons. They make things for people around them to enjoy now. Mm -hmm. And that you, you never know what's going to happen in the future. And maybe some artists make things because they want it to outlive them. But I, most of the artists I know don't, don't like get up and make things every day so that people can hear them after they die. But some of I think, and speaking as a theater artist too, um, 
that sometimes the magic of it just happening in that one moment as a shared experience between you and the people in that room um, is is something that you know that can never be replicated again. There's something kind of special about that too. So I think that um, that's its own kind of magic. Final question: uh, What are museums doing right now, and what are they doing wrong? What's changing in the way museums are presenting artwork? Oh, um, I think museums in general are are taking great pains to bring people in, um, and for a variety of reasons. I think they understand that the old, you know, a museum is a is a relic of a particular time. You know, museums in the U.S. at least a lot of the like neoclassical ones that we see now and we understand as a museum with like columns and mm -hmm. stone and you walk up the steps to worship at the <laughs> altar of, of art with a capital A. I mean, that was a relic of the late 19th century and that was the idea of then. Mm -hmm. And we have to find out what it means to enjoy art now and make a place for the art that's being made now. And it doesn't necessarily fit in the museums as they were imagined in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. So I think um, museums are trying new things um, to figure out what that is, mm -hmm. and, and I have a lot of respect for that. And to believe that the way museums have been going is something that has existed forever right. is not, just not yeah. knowing history. Right. right. Um, that's about it for tonight. I want to thank our live audience today. Thank you so much for coming out. And our guests. Georgiana, Sarah, and Cara Jean. Thanks also go out for a wide variety of reasons to producer Patrick Chastain, our sound man Miles Hall, to Jonah and Cindy Harry, to Jeff Leeser, to Terrence Malick, because every frame of his movie Days of Heaven is a work of art. Uh, to art teacher Connie Jost for teaching my friends Jim Glory and Barbara Preston and others. To the Arts Council of Indianapolis. Uh, to comedian Pete Bar Beauty who could turn one joke into a half hour act. To Wildwood, New Jersey Mayor Guy Musiani, not only for having a great name, but for presenting me with my sand sculpture trophy. <laughs> to Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter, stars of Planet of the Apes. <laughs> to Mike Douglas, the greatest talk show host of all time. And to all of you for listening. Let's get together again soon. Keep your hearts and your minds open. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>